Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of the Mysterious Benedict Society Real Loud Podcast. This is episode 29, and we'll be reading chapters 38 and 39, and those are the very last chapters of the book. So, I'm so excited to finish off this book, and it's going to be so awesome. Uh, but first, a recap of chapter 37. So the children figured out that anger is what makes Mr. Kern fall asleep and not laughter like Mr. Benedict. And they were trying to trick the whisper into shutting down, but it wasn't working. So then Mr. Kern tricked the children into putting him in the chair, and he began to brain sweep all of them. But then Constance, surprisingly, saved the day because she was too stubborn to succumb to Mr. Kern. Constance was fighting very hard with their mind to stop Mr. Kern, and the children realized this was why Constance was essential to their team. But she was getting very tired, and Mr. Benedict Milligan and Rhonda Number 2 came into the tower that just then, and they took the children and Mr. Kern out of the Institute, but by his orders left Mr. Benedict behind. So I hope Mr. Benedict's okay, and we'll hopefully get to see him again, but uh, for now he is in the flag tower. Uh, So that is the recap of chapter 37. Okay, let's read chapter 38. Chapter 38, Escapes and Returns. Down, down the widening passage they went, through darkness and spiderwebs and dripping water, until at last they emerged into a cold wind, brilliant sunlight, and the sound of waves breaking on rocks. They were on the far side of the island, the opposite of the bridge. In the distance, a flat-bottomed motorboat lay beached on a strip of sand, scarcely wide enough to accommodate it. Together, the little group scrambled through the brush and gravelled down to the boat. Milligan dumped Mr. Kern onto the sand that began helping Rhonda number two usher the children into the boat. Kate had just climbed over the gunwale, and Rhonda number two scrambling in after her, when Sticky pointed and cried, "'He's getting away!' Milligan whirled. Kate's rope lay in a tangled on the sand, and Mr. Kern was running with surprised swiftness back the way they come. Already he was almost to the secret passage. In an instant, Milligan had put out his tranquilizer gun and fired, but it was too late. Mr. Kern had gone too far. The dart whizzed behind him just as he disappeared into the secret passage. It was a terrible misfortune, and for a moment Milligan seemed his old grim self. With a severe expression, he turned back to the children. No time to chase him. My duty is to see you to safety, and for that one we must leave at once. Laying a hand on Kate's shoulder as he prepared to shove off, he murmured gently, Remind me, though, to teach you a better knot. "'What if Mr. Curtin stops Mr. Benedict before he can disable the whisperer?' Sticky said. "'We'll go into hiding,' Rhonda said gravely. "'Those are Mr. Benedict's instructions.' Mugin launched the boat and steered them onto the channel, with the children eyed the rocks that jutted up here and there on all sides. "'Um, Milligan, aren't these waters supposed to be dangerous to navigate?' asked Rennie, as the boat whizzed past a sharp rock, mentioning it by inches. "'Oh, yes, fearsome dangerous,' said Milligan with a smile. "'Many a boat has capsized here, but I haven't been secretly swimming in the channel every night for nothing. "'I know these rocks well. You've nothing to fear.' "'The strange sight of Milligan's smile eased their fears of drowning, "'but it also chafed Constance, who blurted, "'How can you possibly smile knowing Mr. Benedict is back there? "'He's sure to have been captured already, and Mama, Mr. Kern will see to it that he's killed.' "'Don't fret, child,' Milligan said, squinting against the spray, "'as he steered their boat between two boulders.' The mainland was rapidly approaching. "'I intend to return for him the moment I feared you to safety. I would never abandon Mr. Benedict.' "'But you won't stand a chance. You're injured, and they'll be ready for you. Mr. Kern will—' The distraught girl was interrupted by the boats rushing up on a sandy shore. Before she could continue, Rhonda Kanzambe had carried her off to the waiting station wagon. The others quickly followed, and soon number two was cranking the ignition and pulling the car onto the road. Milligan sat near an open window with his tranquilizer gun at the ready. 
Just drop me near the big guard house, he directed number two, then take the children away. But Milligan asked Sticky, how will you escape? For that matter, how did you ever escape in the first place? I remember that waiting room. There was no way out. No way but down, Milligan said. I eventually realized that where there's mud, there's water, so an underground stream must run somewhere below the room. But, but how? No great malader, Milligan said. I only had to hold my breath a few minutes to dig down through the mud into the steam, drag myself upstream, then dig through more mud and, no, oh, about a foot of clay. And after that, it was only a question of tearing out a few stones, prying apart a few boards, chiseling out some mortar, bending the bars of metal grate enough to squeeze through. That's how I broke my arm. Then indicating, impassicating the guards and using their keys to unlock my shackles. Really, it's quite simple once you know the trick. The children blinked. More remarkable, Milligan went on, in a voice so happy he almost sang, more remarkable by far what was it happened while I was doing it. Down there in the mud, holding my breath and digging away, I realized that the feeling I had, that I must get back to you children, that I must reach you no matter what the cost, was exactly the same feeling I'd had when I first awoke out of blackness years ago, with the name Milligan running in my mind. Thinking of this, I realized for the first time that it was a child's voice that had been saying my name, and this, just as a realization, struck me. So, too, did the cold waters of the underground stream, and into my mind flashed an image of a mill pond, a lovely place perfect for swimming. I could picture a girl swimming in the pond, so young it was hard to believe she could swim at all, much less splash and dive about like an otter. And in my mind's eye, drew near her knee to me, heard her laughing, and as they took her home, hand to lead her home, heard her ask to me, Daddy, may we come to the mill again? To which I replied, Of course, Katie Cat, of course we'll come to the mill again. Mill... Again, Milligan, don't you see? It wasn't my name at all. It was my last unkept promise to my daughter. I had only to realize this, and all of my other memories came flooding back. The best moment of my life, he finished with an affectionate look at Kate beside him. Kate was trying to fight back tears and failing miserably. The station wagon was approaching the island bridge now. She'd been so thrilled to get her father back. Was she really expected to give him up onto another dangerous mission? Not just dangerous, hopeless. No, she wouldn't have it. And with a ferocity that surprised even her, she declared, You can't go, Milligan. I won't let you. How can you possibly leave me again? Milligan flinched as if he'd been stung, his own eyes suddenly brimming with tears. Oh, Katie, it's the last thing I want to do. But how can I possibly leave Mr. Benedict? Without him, we'd never have been reunited. Then I'm going with you. No, no, that will never do. It will have to do, Kate retorted fiercely as number two stopped the car near the guardhouse. Hush, both of you, cried Rennie, surprising everyone. He was pointing at the bridge upon which now Mr. Kern could be seen in his wheelchair racing toward them. An entire troop of recruiters ran alongside him, shaking their cuffs, their shock watches glinting in the sunlight. The rocketing wheelchair zigzagged recklessly, forcing the recruiters to jump this way and that, to avoid being knocked aside. And the two recruiters in the guardhouse, who must have radioed the island the moment they spotted the station wagon, had come out to stare first at Mr. Kern, then at the car, uncertain of what was expected of them. "'Kate, I love you, but you must leave with the orders,' Milligan commanded. He reached for the door handle. "'Rhonda, see that she does. I'll lure them off by heading back for the boat. Perhaps I can cut behind them. Number two, drive like a fiend and never look back.' "'No,' Rennie shouted just as forcefully, and Milligan checked himself with a start. "'Stay put, Milligan. Number two, don't drive away. Just trust me. Please trust me. We have to wait and see.' It was a tense moment, and a curious one, too. For every person in the car, adult and child alike, realized just then that they trusted this 11-year-old boy quite without reservation. If Rennie Muldoon asked them to do something, if he promised them something, they would do what he asked and believe every word. 
Number two looked at Milligan, who looked back at her. He nodded. She waited. They waited. At the near end of the bridge, Mr. Kern came to a sudden screeching stop in his wheelchair, so sudden that he almost flew out of it despite the straps, pointed at the station wagon and cried, It's a trick! Those are decoys! The others must still be on the island! The recruiters were scratching their heads. But sir, one of them protested mildly, they look just like the ones we're after. Fool! Mr. Kern shouted in his most terrible voice. Do you really believe they would escape the island only to come right back to the bridge? These people are meant to distract us. Back to the island at once. That's in order. The recruiters flinched and spun on their heels. You too, we snarled the recruiters in the guardhouse. Forget the dewey coys. We need all hands on the island. The recruiters saluted uncertainly and left their posts, hurrying to catch up with the others. For a moment, Mr. Kern watched them go, then quickly unstrapped himself and rose from the chair he trotted toward the station wagon. "'What's he doing?' Rhonda said. Milligan lifted his tranquilizer gun and drew a bead on the man, now only a few yards away. "'Don't shoot!' Rennie warned. "'Don't you see? It's Mr. Benedict!' Milligan lowered his gun, amazed. Mr. Benedict's performance had been most convincing, and all their years together he had never seen him look so angry or speak so unkindly. "'Thank you, Rennie, for saving me from that dart,' said Mr. Benedict with a wink, and clipped Virgin of Dolphin laugh. He paused with his hand on the door handle, having noticed that Mr. Kern wasn't in the car. His eyebrows rose. But if my brother escaped, then how did you know who I was? How could you be sure? To be honest, Rennie replied, I knew it the moment I saw how badly you drove that wheelchair. Hmm, yes, it's one thing to snarl and bark orders, quite another to steer that wicked contraption. However, I do think I would have got the hang of it with just a bit of practice. We're very glad you're safe, sir, said number two from behind the steering wheel. But may we please leave now and save the congratulations for later? She was nervously eyeing the troop of recruiters, who had realized their leader was not among them. One by one, they were turning to gawk at the point at the station wagon. Some had started back across the bridge. By all means, number two, said Mr. Benedict, climbing into the floor. Car, let us fly. Okay, that's a conclusion of chapter 38. Now on to chapter 39, the very last chapter. Let's finish up this book, guys. Chapter 39. For Every Exit and Entrance Every night the moon made its slow passage over Stonetown, and every night Rennie Muldoon gazed up through the window of the drafty old house, remembering the moonlit meetings in the mysterious Benedict Society. There was much to remember about that time and much to tell, but the moon and its truly nightly travels would dwindle, disappear, and fatten again before their stories were entirely told. There was too much to do, too little time for storytelling. Mr. Kern had escaped the island, along with several recruiters and a few of his most trusted executives. So reported the government officials Mr. Benedict had persuaded to raid the Institute. These officials had never believed him before, but their former skepticism had crumbled under the weight of new developments. For one thing, Milligan's memory had returned, and with it a number of top-secret government passage words. For another, Kate, unnoticed to anyone, had swiped a pamphlet from Mr. Kern's press room, not to mention Mr. Kern's journal, which she'd nabbed on her way out of the Whispering Gallery. But most important of all, the Whisperer was no longer broadcasting Mr. Curtin's messages. Their mind-muddling effects were daily diminishing. The emergency was fading, and minds long close to the truth were opening again, like flowers caught craving sunlight. These days a steady stream of agents and officers flowed through Mr. Benedict's doors, gathering details and scribbling furiously in their notebooks, and often getting lost in his maze. They wanted to catch Mr. Curtin, though for this Mr. Benedict held out little hope. Mr. Kern, he said, was too smart to be outfoxed by adults. Only children could have accomplished it. Still, there remained the important problem of all those who had been robbed of memories, the recruited children, the secret agents who had been retrained as helpers. 
Mr. Bloomberg, of course, and many good of executives who were not so long ago, had been hapless orphans in search of a purpose in a home. It would be Milligan's task to lead upon the search for all the unfortunates who had ever set foot upon No Man's Island. It would be Mr. Bendick's to restore their memories. Already, Mr. Bendick was hard at work modifying his twin's invention with the aim of reversing his brain-sewing function. Instead of covering up old memories, it would coax them into open again. And when pressed, Mr. Benedict admitted he thought it rather likely he would succeed. To those who knew him, this meant there was no doubt he would. Mr. Kern firmly insisted, however, that modesty had nothing to do with his opinion that the children had been in the real heroes in this adventure. It was they, he argued, who took the risk to discover Mr. Kern's dark secrets. They who overcome Mr. Kern in the whispering gallery. They who primed the whisperer for shutdown. And they who figured out how to unlock the secret exit. Something that could only have been done from the inside. How did you even know about the secret exit, Mr. Benedict? Kate asked one night, some weeks after their return. Though everyone in the house had been talking nonstop, it had mostly begun to government agents, not to one another, and their own curiosities had yet to be satisfied. This night happened to be the first that they all sat down together with no one to interrupt them. Everyone in the dining room cradled a mug of steaming hot chocolate, for autumn had now given way to winter, and everyone, even Constance Contraire, wore an expression of profound relief to find themselves alone together at last. "'Again, I must defer the credit,' said Mr. Benedict. "'It was Milligan who found it.' Everyone looked to Milligan, who was seated at the table beside Kate. "'I just felt sure Mr. Kern would have built in a secret escape route for himself,' Milligan explained. "'So after I joined you on the island, I searched every night under the cover of darkness. Even then I was lucky. I only found the entrance the night before I was captured.' "'It's always about entrances and exits with you, isn't it, Milligan?' Kate teased. Milligan laughed. It was a hearty, booming laugh, and everyone at the table jumped. They were still getting used to his laughter. After all these years of acting like the saddest man alive, Milligan now acted as if he were the happiest man alive. And perhaps he was. Having so long ago exited his life as a father, he had now at long last entered it again. Milligan reached over and plucked Kate's chin, for which the first time in weeks was not greasy with the ointment. Her cuts and bruises were long since healed, having been constantly overattended to, not only by Milligan, but by everyone else in the house as well. Kate beamed, swatting playfully his hand. The next moment she realized the marshmallow was missing from her hot chocolate. She looked up to see him pop it into his mouth. "'You thief!' she said, giggling. Milligan gave her a wink and a fresh marshmallow. At the other end of the table, meanwhile, Bernie was preoccupied with a curious question. "'What should he call the person beside him?' He was seated next to Miss Permal, of course. They had been reunited at last, with much hugging and qu great quantities of tears, and she sat now beside him with one hand resting on his shoulder. But what he continued to call her, Miss Permal? What would he call her? This was a pressing question for all children who find themselves with a new parent. And so it was for Rennie, whose absence had impressed upon Miss Permal how dear to her he was. At their reunion, she had, n had lost no time asking what he might think of her adopting him. At first, Rennie had been unable to answer her, only threw himself into her arms and hid his face. "'Oh, dear,' Miss Primo said, bursting into a fresh bout of tears. "'Oh, dear, I hope this means yes.' It had, of course, meant yes, and the two of them sat now with an old, odd sense, very much like that experienced by Milligan and Kate, of having been family for ages, yet somehow having only just met. An odd sense, but extremely pleasant. "'Mom didn't feel quite right,' Rennie decided. "'Why not use the Tamil word?' He'd heard her refer to her own mother as Amma, but whether this meant Mom or Mother, he wasn't sure." Rennie felt a flutter of happy anticipation, and would ask Sticky. At that moment, Sticky happened to be the only unhappy person in the entire group. He was trying valiantly not to show it, though. 
Instead, he pressed Mr. Benedict with another question. But how did you finally disable the whisperer? I only finished what you children had already begun, replied Mr. Benedict. I persuaded the whisperer that I was Kern, then gave it orders that more or less befaffled it out of operation. But had Constance not already thoroughly discombobulated it, and I had not possessed a brain so very much like my twins, we might never have succeeded. Three cheers for Mr. Benedict's brain, cried Kate. Everyone laughed and cheered. And three cheers for Constance, said Mr. Benedict. Then grew thoughtful as the others cheered, and Constance blushed. That reminds me. Constance, my dear, would you please step into the kitchen and retrieve a small box on the table there? Constance nodded and went into the kitchen. I can't believe it, Stiggy said. She went without even grumbling. It's almost like she's growing up. That is precisely to the point, Stiggy, said Mr. Benedict, with a nod to Rhonda Kanzambe, who went to a cabinet and produced an enormous birthday cake that had been hidden inside. Thank goodness, said number two, I'm starved. Constance returned to find the others beaming at her pointing to the cake. She blushed yet again. But my birthday isn't until next month. Who knows what next month brings, said Mr. Benedict. I say let's eat cake now. Constance shook her head, bemused, though clearly she was delighted, and as she clambered back into her chair, she handed him the little box he'd sent for. It was the three chairs that reminded me, said Mr. Benedict, opening the box and shaking out three birthday candles. I'd forgotten to put the candles on the cake. Three birthday candles, when he said. Three birthday candles? Constance is only two years old? Two years and eleven months, the girl said defensively. The children gaped. But, but... Stig began, then closed his mouth and shook his head. "'Why, that explains everything,' Kate said with a feeling of great relief, as if a nagging question had finally been answered, though she never realized she had the question in the first place. Rennie laughed with delight. "'So that was what Mr. Benedict meant when he said you were more gifted than anyone realized. I thought he was just referring to your incredible stubbornness.' "'Who's stubborn?' Constance said, frowning. "'A toddler,' Sticky murmured to himself. "'No wonder she's always so sleepy, so cranky, so stubborn. "'She's too!' "'I am not stubborn,' insisted Constance, who had overheard. Then she corrected him. "'And I am almost three. The next day, although the house once again was teamed with agents and rattled with the noise of a thousand phone calls, Mr. Benedict had found it necessary to abandon the projects for a time and attend to important matters of a more personal nature. He tracked Sticky down into an upstairs hallway, where number two was rubbing Sticky's bald head and nodding. "'Yes, I concur,' she said matter-of-factly. "'Your hair is definitely coming back.' Finally, Sticky said. Number two noticed Mr. Benedict and frowned. What on earth are you doing out of your chair? Why didn't you call for one of us? I apologize, number two. I was distracted by an urgent ma matter and will return at once. Sticky, will you please accompany me? I have something to discuss with you. Make sure he sits down, Sticky, number two called after them. Together they went to Mr. Benedict's office, where Mr. Benedict obediently sat at his desk and said, Sticky, I won't bait around the bush. Your parents are here. My, my parents? Here, Sticky said, glancing round, as if expecting them to be hiding behind furniture. It was only a nervous response. He had no idea how he felt about the news. I'll explain, said Mr. Benedict. Let us begin with what you already know. After you ran away, your parents did, for a time, get caught up in the sudden downpour of riches. In fact, they made so much money they were wealthier than most people, wealthier by far than they had ever been. Though they did look for you, their efforts grew half-hearted. You're right, Sticky interjectly miserably. I know this part. Not entirely, my friend. Their efforts were half-hearted, I say, but this, more than anything, was because they were afraid of you. Afraid? Of me? Indeed, they were afraid of their inability to give you a proper home. When you ran away, Sticky, your parents were bitterly ashamed. 
You were already so much smarter than they were, and they had already made such a terrible mess of things. If you wished to run away, then perhaps, or so they thought in their anguish, perhaps it was for the best. Perhaps you were better off without them. Better off, Stiggy echoed, remembering that long-ago phrase of his father's, the phrase he partly overheard. He thought his father meant they were better off without him. These were their thoughts at the time. You must also realize they were being influenced by Mr. Curtin's hidden messages. The missing aren't missing, they're only departed, remember? A most pernicious message, indeed. And yet, despite this, Sticky, your parents become perfectly morose. Despite their desperate hopes that money would help them forget you, they soon understood no amount of riches could forget you. They soon fill, they filled you in the hole in their lives. They realized they needed you, even if you didn't need them. And so they spent all their money looking for you. In fact, they have gone deeply into debt and now are quite poor. It may also interest you to know, Mr. Bennett continued, that your parents began their search before we disabled the Whisperer. So determined were they to bring you back, you see, their minds began to resist the broadcasts. Only a powerful love could have mounted such a resistance. Sticky was having trouble taking it all in. And they found me? They didn't call them? They found you. I could have kept you hidden, perhaps. But once I was convinced of how earnestly they sought you, once I grasped their true feelings, I allowed you to be found. So you think I should go with them? It's what you think matters, Sticky. Well, but how do they seem to you? Quite wretched, I should say, and sick with longing for their lost child. They made a terrible mistake and will always regret it. When I told them you were safe, your parents' relief overwhelmed them. They wept and wept. Nor had they stopped weeping when I took my leave of them. I believe they're still weeping, in fact. I saw Rhonda bringing fresh tissues. Sticky's eyes brimmed with tears. And they really said they needed me more than I needed them? That appears to be their own take on the matter. What is your own opinion? The tears spilled over and ran down Sticky's cheeks. May I see them? You had only to ask, my friend, declared Mr. Benedict. Rising to shake Sticky's hand, his eyes shone with emotion. They're waiting for you in the dining room. Sticky flew from Mr. Benedict's study toward a reunion so joyous and tearful, and eventually so full of happy laughter, that soon the dining room was crowded with all Sticky's friends, and with Milligan and Rhonda and number two, and even a few unfamiliar officials drawn by the commotion. It was a splendid, uproar, spontaneous celebration, with hugs and handshakes and kisses all around, and eventually Milligan produced the remains of last night's birthday cake, and Rhonda whipped up a frothy fruit punch. Even the officials, at first irritated by the delay of their investigations, got caught up in the frenzy, and before long they had shed their coats and ties. One of them had put on a record, and danced and broke out. This had been going on for some time when number two suddenly looked about for Mr. Benedict. Mercy, she cried, and flew from the room. She found him exactly where Sticky had left him in their warm handshake. Only instead of standing, Mr. Bendix was sprawled face down across his desk, paper scattered about, snoring like a freight train with an expression of pure happiness on his face. "'Mr. Bendix is adopting Constance, eh?' Constance said to Rennie. "'That's good news, and a good fit, I'd say. He certainly enjoys her lame jokes.' They completed their snow fort and were building up a supply of snowballs for the coming attack. Across the courtyard, Rhonda, Constance, and Sticky were engaged in the same activity. Peeking over the top of the fort to observe the other side's progress, Rennie said, "'Yes, everybody's finding their family, it seems. You have Milligan. I'm to have a mother and grandmother. Constance gets two sisters and a father.' Two sisters?' "'Oh, yes. It turns out Mr. Benedict adopted number two and Rhonda long ago. Though Rhonda believes it's more apt po- appropriate, they say they adopted him. In fact, I think that's how Mr. Benedict put the question to Constance. Would you be willing to adopt us as your family?' Constance told him she'd have to consider it, but was inclined to accept. Kate snickered. Inclined to accept? What gumption? Hey, you're making those too big. Try to make them about this size. She displayed one of her perfectly formed spheres to Rennie. 
then scooped up more snow in her bucket. A gift from Milligan. It was exactly like her old one. Kate, Rennie, are you ready for the indigenous defeat? shouted Rhonda from across the courtyard. Defeat? We know not the word, Kate shouted back, and then whispered to Rennie. Actually, ignominious is the word I don't know. Shameful, Rennie said. Hey, I can't know every word, Mr. Smarty. For crying out loud, how? No, ignominious means shameful. It does, Kate said. She frowned with passionate defiance. She was as happy as she had ever been. The beast. We'll see about that. Do you remember our strategy? When he rolled his eyes. How could I forget? You barrage them with snowballs while I run out and gather all the ones they've thrown, as to keep our pile from running low. Yes, and we pack them to the proper size while you're at it, Kate said. Would you mind terribly if I threw an occasional snowball myself? That is part of the fun, you know, Kate sighed. I hate to waste a snowball, but I suppose there's a chance you'll hit something. Fine, you can throw some. Much obliged, Rennie said. Moments later, the courtyard erupted into a melee of flung snowballs, scurrying and children, and peals of laughter. More laughter sounded from the behind the windows of the house, where all the adults, including Miss Permal and the Washingtons, sipped apple cider and watched the gleeful battle below. Mr. Benedict laughed so hard, in fact, a great long series that sounded like an entire school of dolphins, that number two hurried over to snatch the hot cider, just as he went into a limp sleep. He awoke minutes later only to laugh himself to sleep again, and so he continued laughing and sleeping and laughing again, all afternoon, until at last he slipped into a prolonged slumber. When he awoke a final time to number two's gentle shaking of his shoulder, Mr. Benedict saw that the day had grown noticeably darker. "'It's dusk, and we've called them in twice already,' number two told him. "'Can't you urge them to come inside at once? Dinner's growing cold.' "'Soon, number two, soon,' said Mr. Benedict, casting an affectionate look at her. And then at a giddy, happy children beyond the window. "'Have a snack, why don't you? Sneak a bowl of the stew. I won't tell anyone. But let's give them a few minutes more. They'll be so cold that even lukewarm victuals won't seem piping hot to them.' Just a few minutes more, number two. Let them play. They are children, after all. And this was certainly true, if only for a moment. Congratulations! You've now read the Mysterious Benedict Society Book 1. Don't forget to check out the bonus episode after this episode. I really enjoyed this adventure we have taken together, and I hope you enjoy the new TV series coming out soon. I truly appreciate you and staying with me this far. If you like this podcast, please consider giving me a review and subscribing. It really helps get the word out so others can hear this amazing story. I'll be having a second season of this podcast starting on June 28th and releasing every Monday and Thursday, so I hope you will join me for this second book of this adventure crazy series, The Mysterious Benedict Society and the Perilous Journey. See you guys next season. Bye. (music) 